0: The theme for the talk this morning is Touching the Earth A question of spiritual vision And This talk really comes out of the I think the importance and the significance of Asking ourselves Whether we actually trust our capacity To realise our freedom whether we actually believe it is possible for us to discover the deepest truth of life or whether we are somehow, in some way, content to settle for less or believe that we have no option, in fact, but to settle for less for perhaps a little more comfort in our lives perhaps a little more ease with those difficult things that we experience and this question, the sense of what is possible for us, and in a way what we aspire to in our practice, this is a question of spiritual vision, a question of what we actually believe is possible for us. The story of the Buddha I think is rather important to reflect on in this context. We perhaps are familiar with the story, perhaps not. the the Buddha before his enlightenment, sat down at the foot of the Bodhi tree and he made the resolution that he would not arise from that spot until he had discovered the deepest truth, until he had realized the end of suffering. And this is quite a powerful and profound commitment to make and statement to make. He said, if he sat there until he died, then so be it but he would stay until he realized what he was seeking. And so, in order to do this, he was really expressing as an unenlightened human being. He was expressing a sense of possibility, in fact a trust and a faith in the possibility of that discovery for himself. And in that way, expressing a trust and a faith in that possibility for all of us. And yet, of course, without any guarantee, because if he'd thought he had a guarantee, he probably wouldn't have been concerned that he would die first before it happened. And in the in the tradition, the story is told there that when the Buddha made this commitment, Mara, the personification of greed, hatred and delusion who's sometimes spoken of as a demon or a god, but I think more usefully understood as the, um, the latent tendencies of that give rise to suffering, that are there in the mind, that were in the mind of the Buddha, that were in our minds, that we find in our minds at times, of ignorance, greed, hatred and delusion. And Mara came up and challenged the Buddha on his right to be sitting there. And to me, when I read, when I hear the story, what that sounds like is a metaphor for the Buddha, in fact, doubting in himself whether it was appropriate, whether it was possible for him to make that commitment, whether it was possible for him to realize, to discover that truth. He actually faced that doubt, which I think all of us must face in our practice. And his response to the question, to the challenge as to his right to be there, was to reach out and touch the earth. Touching the earth to bear witness to his right to be there, to his years of practice and exploration and lifetimes in fact which gave him that right. And it's said in the story that the earth bore witness by shaking and rumbling. And bore witness to his human birthright and in that way to our human birthright to realize that which is most true and authentic. And in the stupa, the Mahabodhi stupa, the stupa of great wisdom at Budgaya, which maybe I know some of you have visited and. Um, And and in other places also, one sees this symbol, this image of touching the earth, of the Buddha sitting in the cross-legged position with one hand reaching out, touching the earth. And it's a very powerful symbol. It's a statement of a faith of what is possible for a human being. And it's a, a flowering of a trust in that capacity that is within each one of us within all beings and that 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 trust in the possibility goes beyond in the story of the Buddha the simple in a way untested faith but actually becomes unshakable is transformed into the actual direct knowledge of this through the realization through actualizing that potential through the actual enlightenment which occurred for the Buddha in that place, under the tree. And that that realization is about making it real, making this potentiality, this aspiration real. And we might just ask ourselves, is it possible for us to meet each moment, to meet each experience with a sense of that potential, with a sense of an immediate opportunity that's actually right with us for discovering profound and liberating understanding? To, to feel that understanding actually touch us to the very core of our being. Do we believe it's possible? Are we already sitting there thinking, no, no, that's for someone else? Even if we don't really know what that means, do we believe it's possible? Because it's important, I think, that we do. And then the story which I <coughs> read a few days ago about the, um, the monastery and the, the, all the monks questioning themselves as to whether they were the Messiah. That same question arises, perhaps, in our practice. We think, is it possible that I could be the Buddha? That I could be the Messiah? that I could be whatever the tradition or maybe no tradition at all. That this is possible. And when we when we confront that question, I think what we often notice, what we see arising in us, is a lot of views, a lot of opinions that we might have about ourselves, that we might have about the Buddha, that we might have about humanity in general. That... In some way or another, we'll seek to deny the possibility. We'll say that this is not for me. That often we'll delay this possibility until after, after perhaps we've fixed ourselves, after perhaps we've worked out our stuff, after perhaps we've finally managed to sit for 45 minutes without moving our knees, whatever it might be, that we set as a precondition that we set up as somehow a limitation on our possibility, some unsatisfied condition, perhaps even an unsatisfiable condition, when I make myself perfect. That's clearly an unsatisfiable condition. Yet sometimes that's the way we're thinking, perhaps not consciously. And that when we actually are thinking in this way, and when we're actually believing those thoughts rather sadly, rather unfortunately, believing in those kinds of thoughts. This functions as a limit, as a as a damping upon our spiritual vision. This sometimes has the effect of disconnecting us from that, that place within us that knows, that understands what is possible for us. And we can see how the fascination with becoming a better self, with becoming a perfect self. Perhaps we've given up on trying to be a perfect worldly sense and we're a perfect worldly self and now we're working on becoming a perfect spiritual self and getting better at meditation, getting better at slow walking and we're just great at renunciation and we're finally getting rid of or weakening all those annoying, frustrating and difficult conditioned tendencies that we have. And yet, in a way, we can do this for a long time and perhaps we find ourselves more comfortable, more easeful, more likeable, more respectable. And yet ultimately it's merely rearranging the furniture in our prison cell. If we have not understood the nature of our bondage and the nature of our freedom, then we're merely shifting around the furniture, perhaps redoing the wallpaper, making it look bright and airy, adding on the odd extension, but we're still limited, confined, if we're fixed in that belief that this is who we are. And we see that this, this whole process is often based in an idea that somehow until we perfect ourselves, fix ourselves, purify ourselves, we will not be able to discover our freedom. And we might just reflect, as the Buddha once said, that the lotus flower which is often taken as the image, the manifestation of wisdom the lotus flower grows, grows not on the mountain top, but in the muddy pond. And the idea of some pristine, perfect, beautiful, spacious environment being needed for the, for the lotus to bloom is not necessarily so, but the lotus equally can grow, in fact more ordinarily grows actually from the muddy, dirty water with the weeds and the fishes swimming within. And we perhaps start to understand when we look at these things that any form of trying to become something else, trying to become someone else, even though it has its place within a relative approach to spiritual practice, certainly we cultivate things, certainly we, we do develop things, certainly we consciously attempt to let go of other things. Of course, that is part of our practice. And yet, understanding that the process of becoming, of trying to become something else, this is actually the nature of bondage that constant movement from where we are which is not okay is not enough to somewhere else which if and when we get there and of course we're not guaranteed that we'll get there but if and when we get there that will somehow be where suffering ceases and that's the much-loved um thai meditation master who died a few years ago had uh, something rather direct and rather, I think, beautiful to say about it in his usual way. Um, He said, don't try and become a Bodhisattva. Don't try and become an Ahant. Don't try and become an enlightened one. If you try to become anyone at all, you will suffer. And this might seem a little shocking. It seems that in fact our practice is to become a Buddha, to become an Ahant, a Bodhisattva. And yet that process of becoming is actually the problem rather than the solution. And we also see at times that the view arises that we have to work out our karma. That when we're reflecting on what's possible for us, we see as a limit, as a as a bar to that possibility our sense of the weight of the past, of our past actions and words and thoughts which we feel we still carry with us, which we have a sense of weighing upon us, unresolved, un, in a way unrepented, or, hmm, that's probably the wrong word, um, that, that, that we haven't yet actually freed ourselves from the weight of it. And this is a rather common view, I think, not always expressed in terms of karma, but. I've been so bad. I've done so much in my life. Surely it's not possible, therefore, for me to be a holy and spiritual person, to really realize the truth. And yet, it's interesting to observe that the Buddha himself, even after his enlightenment, still experienced the fruit of his past actions. That there's a story I remember once told to me by a, a Tibetan lama who's saying how the Buddha was... Um, walking one day and uh, stood on a sharp stone and a splinter of a shard of the rock went into his foot and cut his foot. And someone actually said, ''Hey, you're know, you supposed to be so mindful, what do you do that for?'' Um, ''Didn't you see the stone?'' And the Buddha actually responded by saying, "Um, ''Well actually, in a past life,'' and you may or may not believe in past lives but the Buddha seemed to, um, and seemed to also have knowledge of them, he said, ''Once in a past life I was a small fawn, a baby deer, and I was playing rather foolishly amongst uh, between the feet of my mother, and caused her to stand on a sharp stone and hurt her foot. And that, as a result of this this karma, bore fruit in this um, situation here. And that's a rather sort of literal description of um, karma. And I think in the Tibetan tradition, it's often um, very taken very literal in that way that you get exactly what you did comes back to you in that form many lifetimes later. And whether or not we we connect with that sense of it. The point that's important there for for the purpose of this exploration is that the fact that the Buddha still had karma that he was to experience in his life had not been a bar, had not prevented the full awakening and enlightenment which had transformed him. So that just one small example there, saying that the fact that there is karma still, fruit of karma still to be experienced, is not a bar to awakening. And very particularly, in fact, in this, um, in this situation, there's also the, um, the story of Angulimala, which perhaps many of you are familiar with, so the, um, the bandit and murderer who had killed 999 people and wore their fingers round his neck. And this is um, Anguli being finger, mala being necklace, Anguli mala. And he was in fact wishing to kill the Buddha. But the Buddha, through the power of his loving kindness and wisdom, um, in fact gave teaching to Anguli mala, who converted to the practice. And in fact, despite this history, in that very life, in that very existence, of having killed almost a thousand people, the tradition records, that he actually awakened fully to his human potential, to his freedom, and it said that um, subsequent to that, whenever he would be walking through the village as a as a bhikkhu, as a um, as a monk, the um the villagers would throw sort of rotten fruit at him because they recognised him and they didn't like him, and so he still in a way received the fruit of his actions, but um, again, this was not a bar; this had not prevented his realization. And sometimes we might see in ourselves the view, I've been too bad. I've hurt too many people. I've caused too much harm. But somehow I must suffer for all of this, repay my debt. And then, then, only then, will some depth of practice or depth of awakening be accessible to me. We can also see the view that comes, I have all this stuff. To work out all this stuff that just seems to be everywhere when i close my eyes everywhere when i open my eyes particularly when i open my mouth it seems to be even more prevalent and we can think you know it's because of my parents they said this they did that they didn't do this they should have said that or it's because of something else that happened to me all the different things we say if all of that hadn't happened then maybe then maybe something more would be possible and yet again in the story of the buddha It seems that the Buddha had parents, like we all did. And it also seems they laid a rather heavy trip, one could say, on the Buddha, really trying to make him and convert him to being involved in a material life, surrounding him with pleasure, giving him the opportunity to become a powerful king as the heir of his father. And yet, with that, despite that, he went forth, and as we have seen, as we have heard, came to the profound realization which has been carried through in his teachings to this very day. So again, this other view, I have something to work too much to work out, to see if it's operating in us, that it's somehow giving us an excuse or justifying a view of what is possible or not possible for us. And we see also the view, I need to purify myself. And this is closely related with that sense of having too much bad karma or having done too much wrong. I need to somehow purify myself of all the, the greed that arises, of all the aversion that arises, of all the delusions that arise within me. And if we're sitting silently and if we're honest and we look and we see, yes, it does arise, doesn't it? And it's not very pleasant. It's kind of embarrassing on occasion. We think we've been sitting for three weeks and still our mind comes up with such petty, petty, problems or greeds or wantings or fears and at times they don't seem petty at all, they seem quite immense but equally if you've been sitting here for one week or for six we see this process continuing on Once the Buddha met a Jain monk and Jains were a a sect of um, practitioners who were around in India in the time of the Buddha as they still are in India today and although they are often given rather a hard time, one could say, an unsympathetic view is taken of their teaching in the um, Buddhist tradition, not surprisingly they were probably regarded as competition Um, and certainly they maybe seem to have had some limitations and yet also some very wonderful qualities and uh, even today the the practitioners wear a a cloth mask over their face and you can see them in India with that cloth mask so they won't inhale small insects and cause them harm a great commitment to non-harming to caring for all of life but in this case the, the Buddha met this Jain monk and the monk was standing on one leg, had been standing on one leg for quite some time. And the Buddha asked, Hmm, huh, what are you doing? What are you doing? He asked the Jain monk. I'm purifying myself. Because as I stand on this one stand on my one leg, I experience all these racking painful feelings. And as I experience it, as I'm with it, it purifies me. And the Buddha said, oh, that's interesting. He said, do you know how much of this um, bad karma you have, how much of it you have to work off? Do you know how much you started with? And the Jain said, no. And he said, do you know how much you've worked off already? Do you know how much you've sort of worked your way through already? The Jain monk said, no. He said, do you know when you'll be finished? And the Jain monk said, no, I don't. And he then said, How will you know when you've come to the end of this process? And the Jain monk replied, I don't know, I don't understand when this or how this will come to be. And the Buddha, really, I think they're pointing, and and as the Jain monk eventually understood, that it wasn't about a process of just going through all those experiences of just sitting there and being with them. It's actually a process of understanding, that there's something beyond that in a way, silent and um, perhaps a sort of long-enduring mind or process of just being with it all. So that's important, that's part of it. In itself, it's not quite enough. And we see in the, the Buddha's own story again, how the Buddha attempted to purify himself through seven years of long and intensive practice, doing intensive concentration practice, doing intense ascetic practices, mortifying his body to the point where when he touched his belly button, he could push his finger through to feel his spine. He was so skinny. And sometimes it's said in the tradition and some views on it that this practice, this was actually what enabled him to, when he sat under the Bodhi tree, realize the deepest truth. And yet that's not how I understand it at all. And I think the Buddha was quite clear on this. In fact, after all of those years, What the Buddha realized after all that purification, after all that mortification, ascetic practice, all that intensive concentration practice, he realized that it had not worked. That he'd spent seven years doing it. He'd become very good at it. In fact, he was the best. And yet he still realized that suffering had not been uprooted within him. He realized that this was not the path. And so he actually abandoned that path for the practice which he remembered from being a small child of just simply sitting quietly observing with an interest to see just what was happening. And that that commitment to discovering the truth through an immediacy of attention, together with a sense, with a trust and a faith that this is possible for us. This is really what the Buddha offers to us as a symbol, as an invitation in our practice. And this ongoing question of (coughs) how long do I have to do this for? That we so easily project what is possible. We might say, yeah, sure, it's possible. I believe I can be enlightened. It's possible for me in about, you know, another thousand years maybe if I really practice a lot another hundred lifetimes, if I'm really good. And there's this, sometimes this sort of conflict there between a the sense of what is possible now and what might be possible in the future. And I'd like to tell the story of Hui Ning. Uh, he was one of the, um, the Chan ancestors, so the, the forerunners of the Zen tradition in China. One of the great teachers there. And when he was young, he was a kitchen hand in a monastery. Um, and uh, the, the abbot of the monastery was dying, and so he decided that, in his transmission, in, in leaving, ceasing to be the abbot, he would um, find the most worthy of his um, monks to to take on the tradition. And he said he said that rather than just giving it to the senior monk or the next in command, so to speak, he would ask all the monks and the nuns in the monastery to write a poem expressing their deepest wisdom and that from those poems he would choose the, the monk or the nun who had the greatest wisdom as the next abbot. And a story is told that the, um, the next senior monk, who was the teacher of all the monks and nuns, um, was ho- so highly regarded by everyone else in the monastery that they didn't even bother to write a poem. They thought, oh, this the next in command, the next senior monk, he will win. So we, we trust in him. And he wrote a poem. He wrote it on the wall. It went like this. Our body is a Bodhi tree, our mind a mirror bright. Hour by hour we polish them and let no dust alight. And Hui Ning, who was then a kitchen hand and a rather lowly sort of um, member of the monastery, saw this and realised, because he was in fact very wise already, that this poem did not in fact express the deepest wisdom, that he could actually say something more than that. And so he wrote a poem on the wall beside it. It was the only other poem to be written. And it read, There is no Bodhi tree, Nor stand of mirror bright, Since all is void and empty, Where could the dust alight? And so in these two poems we see that there's this one view that it's sort of like this long process of purifying, of wiping away the dust, wiping away the dust, and yet hour by hour we polish them and let no dust alight, but it keeps falling, and we wipe it and it's clear, and we wipe it and it's clear, and we're wondering, well, I'm wiping it away, but is this process of purification ever going to come to an end? And yet, Huy Ning's poem, he doesn't deny the dust falls, he says since all is void and empty where could the dust alight this is profound this is important the dust is falling of course we can see what could be called the impurities, what could be called defilement what could be called the greed the hatred the delusion that does arise but where does it land where does it land for if we look deeply if we see truly there is nowhere that it lands there is no owner of it there is no being that it makes impure and therefore the need to purify oneself of this is an illusion (coughs) is a misunderstanding of what's actually happening and so when there's no owner of that dust it's just dust it's just falling and in this story you can perhaps guess it was Hui Ning who who won the competition he was given the, um, the, the robe and bowl and stick of the abbot and then promptly had to flee the monastery since the other monks weren't very happy that the kitchen hand was about to become the abbot. Um, and that's another whole story. But there's this way in which I think we can understand the process of purification, which does have, again, a relative usefulness to it and a, it is an appropriate way of thinking of our practice within certain limits, that we are cultivating this, learning to let go of that. And all of that has its place. And yet, purification is often, if we see it as taking the impurities out of ourself, it goes on forever. Because that very sense of ourself, which we're taking the impurities out of, this is really the most, this is the largest piece of dust. that this is the view that is responsible for so much of the dust falling. And rather than thinking of taking impurities out of oneself, perhaps we can turn this around and understand our practice as taking the self out of the impurity. What would it mean to take the self out of the impurity? Then it's just there, it's just dust falling, falling into emptiness, just cosmic dust, landing nowhere. And so with our practice we have the the opportunity to, to actually look at perhaps another way of purification also, which is a purification of our, our willingness to see each experience. That often what's going on is we're sort of unwilling to, to fully open to those things that are difficult, that are painful, that are unflattering. And that as we actually open ourselves to them, by not taking them personally, by not investing them with the weight and the significance of selfhood, of not taking them as ours, as mine, as defining who we are. In that, we actually allow ourselves to open to them, to purify our connection with them. So it's not the thing that's being purified, it's more the seeing. It's the willingness to see, the willingness of the heart to open, that becomes purified, that is refined. And that. In this, we start to understand that the truth is reflected equally in each experience, in each moment, that our practice of opening to each moment is opening to the potential, to the possibility in each moment that it will be the moment in which we awaken, that that is its potential. And we also... So there's the whole area of purification and how it can sometimes be, I think, misunderstood or overemphasized in practice and and create a a sense of what is not possible for us, limiting us in some ways in our vision. And then there's also the whole area, perhaps, of the danger that comes out of the model that we have of the Buddha, the model that we often hold to of the Buddha as somehow being perfect. And in fact, the, the Buddha is... Defined in the tradition as having perfected the human qualities, the paramis, the ten qualities, um, beginning with renunciation and um, generosity and morality and patience and loving kindness, effort. Can't remember them all. Um, But the human qualities that are perfected in becoming a Buddha. And so the Buddha is spoken of as the perfect one, having been perfectly enlightened. And yet As I already mentioned, um, he experienced painful sensations, just as we do. The the splinter in his foot causing him quite some pain and discomfort. And There's a a rather lovely story um, where once the Buddha is giving a talk to the nuns and the monks, he notices that they are very alert and awake, even though it's just past midnight. And yet he's rather um, uncomfortable. And so he says, Ananda, the, the, the nuns and monks are free from sloth and torpor. I would like to lie down and rest my aching back because it is sore. Would you please continue teaching the Dhamma to these nuns and monks? And Ananda keeps talking, gives the teaching. But there's the Buddha. Not only does he experience a sore and aching back and you might have thought that that was what was going to stop you getting enlightened, but actually, not only that, but he actually thinks, oh, maybe it's okay to lie down and take care of it as well. And we might just reflect on what that means about the Buddha. Maybe there was a human being there as well. And there's a whole um, series of uh, encounters that the Buddha has with Mara, in which he appears to experience um, the arising of various sort of movements of greed, of hatred and delusion coming into his mind. And this is rather controversial. Some people say that no, no, this has got nothing to do with the Buddha. This was Mara, some other creature, sort of completely separate and removed. Um, This demon or this god Um, and yet if one reads these sutras um, what one sees, it's like a perfect metaphor Mara comes along to the Buddha seeking to make him feel fear and dread or seeking to make him feel confusion and the moment he appears the Buddha sees him and says Mara, I know you, I see you and with that Mara greatly disappointed slinks away and this pattern of seeing how the movement of fear might arise into the mind. And yet if it's seen in the moment it arises in consciousness and there is no identification with it, one just knows this is Mara. It has no power. One would, I think, not even call this an impurity. It's just energy arising. And it has no power. One is free, even in the midst of it, in that capacity to recognize it in its moment of arising. And again, as I say, this is controversial. Some people will say, no, that never happened for the Buddha. But on my reading, it seems quite clear. So this, this again, the story seemed to me to be a metaphor for us. A metaphor of the fact that just because we might have seen in the last 45-minute sitting a vast array of confusion, of fear, of anger, of craving arising within us, that this in itself does not mean that we are somehow a long way away from our freedom. That we are somehow greatly distanced in time or in space from our potential. That we too easily have the tendency to put off what is possible for us. To put it off for many lifetimes, for many years. And yet, each moment is a lifetime. Each moment we are born into and die from. And that there's a birth and death process That when we fully open to it, when we see that it's happening each moment, that we we actually can open to the possibility of being liberated in the next moment, in this very moment. And that we might be quite aware that the process takes many lifetimes. But how do we know how many we've had already? You know, that the the Buddha might have even said this takes, you know, nine hundred and ninety nine thousand lifetimes. Well, how do you know you haven't already lived 999,000 lives? How do you know that? This may be that lifetime. The Buddha equally did not know, and yet equally it was that lifetime for him. And as the Buddha said, we have cried enough tears in our lifetimes to fill the four great oceans. The bones of the bodies we've moved through, piled high, would be taller than the tallest mountains. Haven't we already seen enough, experienced enough, learnt enough from the lifetime we've already lived, from the experiences we've already had, to actually give up our preoccupation with becoming better, with getting somewhere else, with actually trying to improve ourselves. To quote Wei Wu Wei, a Chinese mystic, he was once asked, Why do you suffer? And he replied, You suffer because 99.9% of what you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. So it's important not to let our view of imperfection or defilement distract ourselves from a deep vision of practice, from a profound vision of possibility. That there's a real danger of a false humility in saying this is not possible for me. It might sound kind of spiritual, I'm not saying you know, it's like saying this is possible for me it might sound like it's almost too big headed, it's too inflated, that it's almost egotistical, and yet Understood correctly, it is not, and perhaps it's even more conceited to say it's not possible for me because it's equally a conceit to put ourselves down and to put ourselves up. That the suffering we experience in life is based in not seeing and fundamentally not understanding the truth of life, the truth that life is revealing in each moment. That not seeing our true nature, not understanding truly who am I, truly what is this, not understanding that fully. It's the same question whether we say who am I, whether we say what is this, it's the same question. And there are whole spiritual traditions founded on just that inquiry. that the tradition of um, the Indian sage and saint of the century, Ramana Maharshi, who the basic inquiry, his basic teaching was just to deeply ask, Who am I? Who am I? And I went um, in a retreat in, in India. I remember having a very powerful experience of just the question, What is this? Just exploding in my consciousness. It was like cannons going off within me. I thought, What is this? What is this? And just breaking down the whole sense of what I believed it to be. And very interesting, I, I found it very fascinating, I've never practiced it, to um, find that the Korean Zen tradition has a whole, in a way, a whole tradition based on that question, what is this? As a koan that in Zen, they use in some traditions many different questions, and koans is a process of deep inner inquiry. And in the Korean tradition, it's pretty much founded on this one question, deeply inquiring what is this what is it worth? and we see if we really engage with that question very deeply where that takes us in our heart and our mind where, where we settle into when we can really deeply engage with that what is it that happens within what is it that opens that might be revealed within in that process and we see In this, that so easily and so often, we are looking elsewhere. We are seeking for something which is other than, or somewhere else. And that we're looking outside of ourselves. We're looking for something other. We're looking away from where we are, and away from what is, in the hope that that will be somehow different, or offer us more. And yet if we look deeply, if we really look, if we really still, we start to sense in a quite inexplicable, a quite mysterious way that 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 which we are seeking is that which is seeking. That the seeker and that which is sought are of the same nature. They could not be other than that. That they are indivisible from each other and always were one. That the appearance of the seeker looking for that which is sought dissolves in that understanding. The sense of looking for something other dissolves in the recognition that that which is looking is that which is to be seen. That that which is seeking is in fact that which is sought. And that in that, in that recognition, in that understanding, we come to rest where we actually are. We come to rest because we're no longer drawn out, we're no longer pulled forward or pushed backward from where we are. Because that whole movement has ceased in the recognition of the undividedness and the indivisibility of life and of this even this whole process of spiritual seeking being undivided from its both its source and its object, one could say. There's a beautiful poem by Rumi, the, the mystic and poet of the um, Sufi tradition. It goes like this. I've been living on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. Think what that might mean. We can drive ourselves crazy, living on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, trying to figure it out, trying to fix it, and yet we're knocking on a door. And when it opens, we realize that we're knocking from the inside. That we were never excluded or apart from that which we're seeking. It would not be possible for this to be so. And that in that realization, in that recognition, the suffering of life dissolves and is recognized and understood as as having only ever been an illusion an appearance, as never having been fundamentally and ultimately true, but merely a way of looking at things. So I'd like to finish with a poem. Called seeing the mirror. If you think it is your face that you see in the mirror, consider this. Is it there now? When you're born into a world of glass, it is easy to be caught up in the reflections and cut by the edges and to spend your life seeking for the faith you had before you were born. But when you see with your heart, you don't need a mirror to see your own true face. And when you can look into the mirror, neither deceived by the reflection nor distracted by the images, then there is just seeing your own true faith. So can we sit quietly for a minute or two please? May all beings see into life. May all beings know the power of touching the earth. May all beings realize their own true faith